Oh yeah, what's up everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, May 14th. Super excited to have all you guys here. Hopefully you got a chance to check out the episode I released today. It was an interview <coughs> with the legendary Dennis Rothman. Uh, that was a really fun interview for me to record. Uh, hopefully you guys get a chance to listen to it. He's a really interesting guy. Um, we barely talked about data science at all. We just talked about a bunch of random stuff, but it was really cool. Uh, definitely go and check that out. Um, excited to have everybody here. What's up? We got a lot of a lot of good friends in the house. We got Joe with the epic background. You guys need to go on the podcast and check out Joe's background. Vin, what's up? Akshay, Tor, John, Sebastian, what's up, man? Super excited to have all you guys here. Uh, what's up, man? How's everybody's week been? How's everybody's week been? Uh, oh, congratulations to John Sebastian. He just landed a role, a new role. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. Joe, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? Good. Good. It's uh, This was the first week like yesterday was the first day that i was able to walk outside with just a t-shirt on um because winnipeg gets cold like that so <laughs> summertime is officially upon us and i'm excited about that um taking all of next week to go chill at a cabin by the lake i'm super super excited for that i won't be hosting office hours next week they'll still be going on but our host for office hours will actually be vivian vivian's going to take over for me next week i'm excited about that uh vivian how you doing how's, how's your week been it's good it's been really busy had a lot of surprise things come up this week good surprise things or or, or bad surprise things good surprise things yeah well, tell us about them oh it, it just i i don't know i don't want to okay. <laughs> sorry well, no problem, man. Vin, good to see you again. Um, yeah, if anybody has questions, man, definitely go for it. Go ahead and let me know. You can feel free to unmute yourself or go ahead and type in the chat that you have a question and um, we'll be happy to, to help you out. Um, I'm just going to continue to stall until we get a question that, that comes in. Uh, Vin, my man, how's, how's your week been? This has been a crazy week. I think crazy chaotic is going around. Might be in the water or something. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what happened this week. Um, a whole bunch of new priorities kind of showed up on Monday and then more showed up on Wednesday evening. And it was just that kind of week where, <clears throat> surprise, you got work. <laughs> surprise, you got work. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing, right? It's better than not yep. having anything to do. Yeah, it was interesting. I had two different clients do 180s this week, getting ready for um, next year. Uh, they're doing some kind of aggressive, uh, call it digital transformation, but some aggressive upgrades to what they're working with right now and some of their machine learning workflows. Uh, a couple of them are working on automating a ton of their marketing workflow. And it's just kind of one of those, all of a sudden they got people to buy in on it and they don't want to wait. So it's all hands. That's what's up, man. I'm, I'm interested in that uh, marketing use case that stuff is always super fascinating to me uh, but i do see that there's a question in the queue for mark mark my man what is up and while mark is asking his question if anybody would like to hop in the queue for a question please send me a message in the chat and i will add you to the queue mark go for it awesome uh so i i have this new transition in my career which is really exciting and to kind of give context um when i was early in my career you know, I was given a task and um, they told me how to complete the task. As I kind of grow in my career, they give me giving me a task and I just figure out how to do it. I'm now shifting to a point in my career where 
they're like, here's these business objectives and goals we have. You figure out what would be the most impactful way to make that happen and you need to execute, which is really awesome. Like really fun um, kind of thing. But the challenge is in the previous kind of aspects of work, I just had to throw more work at it and, and I was happy. I got things done. Now, throwing more work at the situation just runs me in circles. And so like, you know, there's this prioritization piece. There's this like, when do you know when to stop piece uh, for the day? Because I'm working myself to the bone because I want to work on everything. <laughs> and so I guess the key question is, once you get further in your career, you have more rope to kind of hang yourself with. <laughs> Um, how do you best prioritize things you're working on? Also, you know, when you have these long-term projects now that are not really task-based, but more so like long-term vision execution-based, how do you know when to stop for the day? Um, because I'm, I, I'm having a hard time being able to say like, ah, today was a good day. Let me stop. Cause there's always something else to work on. So I kind of relate to that. It's not necessarily the same thing for me, like at, at work, like I don't have, uh, the breadth of responsibilities that it sounds like you have at, at your startup, but just in personal life and everything that I do in general, there's a lot on my plate. Um, I tend to just focus on things that I can only uniquely do, right? Um, and try to pick them off as, you know, focusing on whatever the highest impact thing that I could work on in the given moment is. Um, and, you know, I'll probably spend a couple of hours on Sunday thinking about what that is for the coming week and plan the week out accordingly for that. I mean, I've, I've got some uh, nice little to do list, right? Just kind of just kind of a few big things I need to get done. Right. Um, that's been my approach. But I love to hear what uh, what some other folks are, are doing. Let's start with uh, let's start with Greg on this one. And then um, let's hear from Akiko after Greg. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks, um, Harpreet. And thanks, Mark, for a question. It's it's interesting. Uh, it's uh, there's I don't believe there's a right answer for, for this because it's. It's going to to uh, vary based on your your ambition, your situation. Uh, you know whether you're on your own, you're by yourself, you don't have you know a family and things like that. And what you want in life, what you value in life. At some point, you're going to have to be selfish. Um, where because if 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 you really value your your well being, your wellness, you're going to have to find uh, what matters the most to you. Uh, where you're going to have to say no, I can't take on more responsibility. I need some time for myself. Say, for example, between 5 p.m. to 7 p.m., this is my time, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, other than that, I think you should uh, definitely, uh, to Harper's, um, you know, point, you have to be able to measure the or estimate the potential impact of everything you touch and kind of trim out the noise or the ones that are nice to do for people uh, versus high impact ones. So for that, you're going to have to start focusing more on the big impact ones, don't get trapped by the idea of becoming the know-it-all, do-it-all, and you become somebody, the mark who's actually uh, useful versus the mark who focuses on a few things that are super high impact for the business. And when Mark delivers, he moves on up the ladder very quickly because you will have the um, uh, approval of people at the top that you did move the needle by focusing on these big projects. So you're going to have to learn to balance all of these, figure out, you know, you're going to have to stop helping people or fixing everything. Uh, even though they're nice to have, they feel good. Uh, you feel valued because everybody is asking for your help, but a lot of it too, you'll find out uh, sooner or later that the impact that you thought they were going to have 
it's not going to be needle moving kind of activities you're doing. So kind of move them out, focus on the big ones and be a little selfish and go for them. Let's hear from uh, Makiko and just a heads up uh, for the queue. I've got Russell, then Makiko, then Akshay, then Greg. If anybody else has questions, let me know. I will add you to the queue. But for now, let's hear from Makiko on this topic. And if anybody else would like to contribute, please let me know uh, by raising your hand and I'll add you to the queue. So after Makiko, we'll go to Joe. Yeah. I mean, to piggyback on uh, Greg's, you know, wonderful like points and advice, right? Um, uh, not everything matters <laughs> working in your job or company. <laughs> um, no, and seriously, and I think you, I think part of it is figuring out um, sort of what are your personal goals for yourself and aligning your strategy to that. So for example, if your goal is to move up the ladder, a hundred percent, it's you basically cut out 50% of the work that you do focus on like the 50% that the leadership sort of cares about. Um, and then you deliver on those things. And, and that's pretty much how it goes. Um, moving up and being promoted a lot of times, it's not about like absolute value because especially like in sort of the, the tech world and the tech environment, a lot of things kind of get experimented and thrown out anyway. Um, but it's about understanding like what are the things that the people are in power care about and zeroing on those things. If your goal is to become like a really strong technical contributor, um, it's sort of similar, but not really in the sense that that's where you can kind of like focus your goal on like, you know, what are the projects that are projects and buzzwords and, and sort of uh, things that the company cares about in the industry? So like, for example, um, if you, I'm just going to use a random example, right? Uh, so when I was over at Autodesk, right, like, uh, you know, they kind of has broken out into like product lines, but there were certain things that would sort of get uh, the leadership's attention a little bit faster because it was first off relevant to like the company. So it wasn't just like, you know, it wasn't a way out of what the company's por you know, portfolio of skills and experiences and infra was. Um, but it was also something that was very relevant to like customers, you know? So if your focus is more to be like a strong technical contributor or to eventually, for example, become a principal engineer, um, you you still have that sort of kind of, I don't say politicking that you need to be aware of, but it really becomes like, what are sort of like the kind of the, the big projects that you can, or the big sort of like uh, buzzwordy projects or whatever that you can kind of focus in on and you kind of execute. And there is when you need to like start figuring out how do you pull in um, like additional resources? Like how do you start being a connector? How do you start um, thinking more about like the ar architecture of like what you're building, right? So it's a little bit different. If your goal is to go up the corporate ladder, uh, then you really, you just cut out like half, like half the work, F figure out sort of the, the map or the landscape of who matters above you that will promote you up. And then uh, you work on that and you also like build the relationships there. Um, if your goal is to be a technical contributor, it's a very different sort of different sort of track. So I think that's the first part is understanding what's kind of important to you. I think the second part too, is just being aware of like hustle culture in data science, machine learning. It's like super real. You can burn out so fast. Like <laughs> I know a bunch of people here on the call are like really strong like content producers and creators and all that, um, you know, but at some point, I think, especially with COVID, uh, you know, and like, for me, I made the personal mandate to like, I will only focus on myself and the things I want to do. If I do something that I don't want to do, it better be in service of something even greater. And like, for me, my personal alignment is I want more flexibility and freedom. Um, I don't want to play the corporate ladder games. I want extra money so that we can kind of do actually like non data science machine learning stuff. So for example, I really love designing clothes and sneakers. So, you know, like I want to do, I want to have a company that does that, like custom design sneaks, right? So totally different. Um, but those, those are the things I value, right? Flexibility and all that. But it's hard, especially if you're like a super um, driven person, you know? 
sometimes the best thing you can do is you just set those like, you know, so you set those like uh, boundaries for yourself. For me, I had to do that by essentially scheduling like boxing classes at five. Yeah. Sneakerheads. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a, I had a scheduled boxing class at five, uh, you know, Pilates, we call it yoga Pilates classes, um, you know, or things like that. Uh, scheduled dinner with family at like six or seven on Fridays uh, because I'm like, for me, it's kind of like if I don't set up those like other strong things, you know, then I will just keep sort of expanding out, um, you know, but that's just kind of like, yeah, that's that's how I try to do things and, you know, still fail miserably. Uh, next up is is Joe, Mark, um, any, any comments or questions up until this point based on? No, I mean, this has all been excellent stuff. I, I think it really zoned in on my problem. I, I struggle with saying no. I don't want to do, I want to do everything because I love data and I want to touch my hands on everything. And it's, it's starting to burn me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, mentally. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've been there before. I'm still there sometimes too. Um, I think there's been a lot of good advice here. The other thing I would say is you kind of mentioned that you've been given enough rope to hang yourself and, I've been in situations where it's happened a ton, right? So the only solution I found is you got to be, you got to focus on like the one to maybe three at most things you need to get done for the day. And once you get those things done, maybe you get a few other things done that might be sort of on a list. But after that, it doesn't matter. Like chill. And the other part is like ruthlessly prioritize. Like what, so my schedule is every um, beginning of the week, actually a Friday, I go through all the to-dos I haven't gotten done, reorganize those for the next week, right? Then it's out of mind for the weekend. I don't need to think about it. Come Monday, I focus on, okay, what are like each day? What's the top thing I need to get done for that day, right? What's the top thing I need to get up for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? That's it. Maybe there's a couple things, maybe there's dependencies, but by doing that, then you have your like secondary list of like the miscellaneous stuff that need, that might need to get done, but it's not a priority. And I think by just getting those kinds of wins each day, where you're just focused on if I can get this done, it's all that matters. Uh, that's going to, um, I think, save a lot of mental uh, capacity for just taking care of stuff. Because I, 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 you and I, we talk behind the scenes. I kind of know what's going on. And I, I can, I know that you're going to, um, you're doing a great job, which means uh, um, you're going to be given more work. <laughs> that's kind of how that goes. So um, congratulations. Yeah, you get to do more work now. So but now it comes down, I mean, you're going to get paid money by making the most effective results, right? And that means like, you got to be ruthless about prioritizing. Is this, is this action, each, each one of these days is going to move the needle. And if it's not, it gets skipped how it is. And, and another kind of big thing, kind of the context why I'm asking this question is that with these long-term projects that aren't really task-based, it's, it's more complicated. I have to really think. And so if I'm working hard on other things, I don't have the mental, like you said, the mental capacity to actually think through these like really complex projects. Um, it's just not there. <laughs> so what I, I, my, my trick to that is on um, Fridays, I always set aside Friday for thinking day. So Monday is actually admin day where you just get rid of like all the shit that just needs to kind of get knocked out, all the tiny stuff. Friday is spent for thinking if, if you can help it because you, you got to have that space. You can't just force good thinking. It doesn't, it doesn't ever happen. You have to set aside the space to do it. And so, but it's going to be tough because you're, you're kicking ass, which means people are, you're, you're popular now. Right? That's what you wanted, but this is the paradox. Yeah, man. Make sure, make sure you put that in your on your calendar too, right? So... I give myself 30 minutes, an hour here and there inside of my calendar during work time. And during that time, I want to make sure I do something that's different. It could be something outside of work. It could be reading, reading an article that inspires me. So book, book that time for yourself inside of working hours. Uh, um, and if you have to move it, you can move it. You can be flexible with that too. But uh, to Joe's point, that thinking time, you know, you can do it throughout the week also. For those of you listening at home, Mark is the kind of guy that will schedule a relaxation day down to the half hour with uh, yoga and meditation all scheduled in. Uh, it's funny when I was, when I saw you do that, like Liz 
Fossling um, was talking about that in her book about just religiously scheduling out um, vacation days and trips like that. And it just it reminded me of, of that. It was uh, pretty funny to see. But I mean, to, to echo uh, Joe's point, like you need that space, a busy calendar plus a busy mind that completely destroys your ability to do anything great. Um, Tor, I see your hand is up. So we'll hear from Tor. Then after Tor, we're going to jump right into the other questions. We've got questions from Russell, then Makiko, then Akshay, then Greg. If you guys do have questions, please let me know in the chat and I'll add you to the queue. Uh, go for it, Tor. Yeah, I just wanted to say about this calendar that we've been talking about that, you know, scheduling your own time is important. But keep in mind that if you look at most people's calendars, they're completely booked the first week and after that completely empty. So when you manage your time, start booking people's time in the future because there will always be availability. And that way you can kind of control, especially on the long-term projects, you can then schedule meetings like quarterly or bi-monthly. And if you do it early enough, your time is booked. They're not going to start moving it around. They will actually take other bookings around that. On the other hand, when you schedule your own time, what I always did, my morning time is my time. I get up at six, from six to eight, that's my coffee time. Nobody disturbs me. But when I came to work, I would have from eight to nine every day. That's my time. Nobody else takes that time. And that's booked in the calendar. And like Joe said, you can always move it around, but it is booked. So people will then try and book around your time. So it's really about managing your time and burning out. Believe me, it's not a good thing. You don't want to go there. So learn to read the signals when you start getting tired or you start feeling that it's not that the energy isn't the same. Take a break uh, because you definitely don't want to hit that wall, guaranteed. Thank you very much, Tor. Mark, you got a lot of great advice there. Um, I really appreciated everyone's input. Let's go to the questions now with Russell first and then Makiko. Russell, go for it. Evening, everyone. Good to see uh, some familiar faces here. Um, so the question I've got is related to something that's been in the news a lot recently. So uh, crypto currency with uh, Elon Musk's um, appearance on SNL. Uh, and I've seen some... Um, report coverage that uh, uh, cryptos have been investigated for money laundering, etc. So with the likelihood that some people may be using, um, you know, scraping techniques and and ML models to try and help them choose when and how to optimally invest in crypto, how could they cope with such extreme things happening? I mean, you know, big stonks, massive movements in the market, uh, those types of things. I'm, I'm guessing that that's such an extreme event. You couldn't really build that into a model at all. So the, the people that have huge amounts of crypto um, are able to manipulate the market quite easily. I'd say read the Inserto series by Nassim Taleb, uh, and that'll be the blueprint for how to handle events like this. But um, I mean, I'm not an investor by any means, but just kind of thinking about it, put the bulk of your money maybe 80, 85% in secure, safe type of investments, and then just be reckless with the other 15%, right? And, you know, have that be your limited downside. Um, that's all I got to say, but I'd love to hear from other people on this. So um, let's let's see what Vin's got to say on this topic. And then also, Tom, good to see you. I just saw Tom is in the building. Tom, how's it going? Uh, Vin, let's go to you. Well, when it comes to crypto investing, if you look at it, if you just zoom back and maybe shrink the swings that hit crypto, they don't look that different than 
any other investment marketplace. The swings are definitely wilder. But when you look at what causes each one of the swings, the sentiment types that cause them really aren't that different. So how crazy will the swings be? That's really hard to like, you have to figure out some kind of multiplier. You know, and that's the only thing you jack up your risk significantly, but the swings themselves look like the swings that are driven by sentiment and, uh, you know, and then there's the couple of other strange things like HODL, where HODL actually grounds prices and causes crypto rebounds. And it's just this, like, uh, I don't know, cult mentality is the wrong word because they're all making money and no one's killing themselves. So it's not really a cult, but it's that kind of mindset where people are willing to put their financial self-interests aside and collectively hold on to enough crypto that a little bit of selling eventually leads to a rebound. And so they have the same type of control of crypto that your large institutional investors have over your more traditional stocks, because those institutional investors, for the most part, have the same kind of cult-like mindset. Well, they'll hold a stock you know, after a, a month of just getting trashed because they know long-term, they don't care. It's going up. They, they see the value problem. So You'll see all of these similar trends that are in traditional investments in crypto. It's just a much wilder cycle. And there's this scary cliff in the future of, you know, the price can only go so high because we only have so much energy to put into this. You can't, I mean, there is, and people don't talk about this enough. There's a cap. You can't, the more, the higher the price, the more energy it takes to do all of the work that goes into maintaining the crypto marketplaces. And so at some point, the price gets to a cap where we don't have enough energy to do it anymore. And there are entire industries that like outsource to provinces in China where the cheapest possible energy is available to do all of this mining. And there, you know, it, it's this really interesting natural bound, I guess, of resources that even in the virtual world applies in the same way that in our everyday market, there are caps on resources. It's eventually going to have to have some kind of giant leap forward in order for the valuation to go above where they are. So like I said, a lot of these different, you know, a lot of these normal traditional challenges exist in the cryptocurrency market. There are some technological challenges in there masquerading as supply and demand side forces. But outside of that, like I said, I just, you know, put a multiple on whatever you're willing to deal with as far as risk is concerned. And it's fundamentally the same. HODL, H-O-D-L, right? Hang on for dear life. That's what you're talking about, the being there. Yeah. Um, let's see if anybody else has any takes on this. Um, I mean, with respect to like that economic and energy cost, you got to have more efficient consensus so, algorithms, I think, right? Uh, but Greg, go for it. For, for me, I'm, uh, I, I'm confused. I, I'm not the best at blockchain, right? But I'm curious, right? So I, I follow things that Elon Musk say, and I, I'm not too sure the last time he, he put uh, something out there about Bitcoin, for example. And to me, I'm like, is it is this borderline market manipulation? Because he's now saying Bitcoin, of course, is spending too much energy uh, to, to mine. And he's he would more likely focus on the ones that are uh, requiring le less energy. So in a sense, you know, he's kind of like he's setting himself up or in his company for the underdogs, right? So um, to, to, to leverage that as a, I don't know, some sort of uh, source uh, or digital coin for his businesses. Now, the way I look at this is in, a, in an investment piece, if, if you know very little as I do, what I'm thinking is 
to Harper's point of putting that 15% in something you don't fully understand is maybe look at the these underdogs that are now mining at very little uh, 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 energy level at some point and also who are very affordable. Maybe those are the ones that if you lose $1,000, you don't feel bad about it. But in two years, if they get to $2 or $5, you get you know, your biggest bang for your buck. And as long as you understand the underlying technology of it, uh, uh, um, it's, it's, you know, maybe something you can adventure into, but it's still, you know, to Vince's point, it's going to be a big swing. What I'm truly interested about in crypto though, uh, in blockchain though, is kind of like the underlying technology too, and how it fixes a lot of our issues like transactions, contracts between companies in supply chain when to, to uh, a vendor and a, and a user, a consumer have a contract and uh, there are multiple transactions happening, whether it's price or goods. Uh, and I promise you that I will send you a million pounds of something. Can we trace back that you, in fact, sent me a million and not 999.2 of it and you're paying, you're charging me for the full price how do we reconcile all of these? So that's what I'm interested in to understand, you know, the power of blockchain, the underlying technology. Uh, but the whole, you know, uh, cryptocurrency kind of confuses me and I'm just curious. So yeah, man. blockchain is awesome. I think the technology is great. I don't really get crypto that well, but uh, the underlying technology of blockchain is amazing. And I know Akshay has a related question to this. So let's go to Akshay's question. Then we'll circle back to Makiko. Then after Makiko, we'll go to Greg. So Akshay, go for it. For sure. So we were talking about swings and I think it goes along the strategy as well. Um, so Dodge started off as a joke in February, but I read about somebody investing all of their life savings for 250K and now they are holding $2 million through Dogecoin. But nobody knows when the bubble is going to burst. Uh, same thing is when Tesla announced that uh, they're not accepting Bitcoin payments anymore because it poses an environment threat. So people are raising questions like, what's going to happen to crypto? Is it going to keep going on? Um, Hive, on the other end, um, has an interesting strategy. So their coin portfolio uh, is $36 million, and their crypto portfolio was $15 million at the end of 2020. And now it's four times, it's $60 million. So now that this source of liquidity has segregated for them, it helps them uh, have a baseline value for their stock prices. So that benefits investors that are holding on to the high blockchain stocks. And tomorrow, if they decide to expand more data centers or invest in like other infrastructure, they have two sources of uh, liquidity in terms of their coin sales, uh, which has a strong baseline value and the four times multiplied crypto value that they have gained over a period of time. So the question here is, do different strategies, um, along with the sentiments that are playing around, affect how a certain crypto value is going to scale from time to time? And obviously, the biggest concern here is how much threat does it pose to the environment in terms of the emissions? So there's going to be a race in terms of which cryptocurrency is adopting the best strategy, but there is a strong bias, such as what Elon Musk did on SNL. Like if somebody tweets and people take that as a negative sentiment that, oh, no, this cryptocurrency is going to fall, no matter what the strategy is, it's going to affect the sales for that crypto. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how it goes. Uh, it's, it's like a bubble that's going to burst, but I feel like it's smart investment that needs to be really thought driven and it has to be backed with enough knowledge about the market, like why certain crypto companies are targeting a sale value and what's their strategy behind that. 
And Hive is a great example for that. Yeah. Um, if anybody has any comments on that topic, definitely just raise your hand or unmute yourself and let me know. Um, I mean, I don't know enough about crypto to, to speak intelligently about it. So I'm going to just try to stall until somebody unmutes themselves and just starts talking about stuff. Real quick, I'll add something. Yeah. It really annoys. I, I kind of like Elon. I don't know much about him. But when people throw out that kind of caca, it bugs me because I think, okay, let's compare that to how much it costs to run the lights and the AC and the computers at all the banks in the world. Now let's add up all the gas that's used to get the bankers and the people that work at the banks to and from the bank. And we could go on. And now how about our, all the armored trucks driving around, including the air? So if you're really going to complain about mining costs on crypto, why don't you start with the cost just to run things the way they're being run now? and compare it instead of just throwing out some one-off statement like that. It's just, it's pointless. No, I agree with you mean, like that, that with what you're saying. Um, it's like for solar panels, right? Like when we think about how much money goes into producing solar panels versus the energy it saves, um, there's a lot more that goes into producing them than, than, than the benefit you get. It's the same kind of concept, I guess, here. But if anybody has anything to say here, Mikiko, go for it. It's funny that you mentioned solar panels because that was one of my jobs was literally doing supply chain and, and financial analysis for Sunrun, which is the biggest uh, American residential solar company. Um, but I think in general, there's going to be a reckoning about the environmental costs, right, in tech. Like, so, for example, um, I mean, I've seen this pretty regularly, but like, for example, like articles or blog posts on like the environmental cost of like deep learning models. Um, the paper that I forgot what her name was, uh, she was pushed out of Google. Uh, she was the head of like like AI, like uh, ethics and research, right? And I think one of the, the specific papers she was writing was about the large scale language models. And one of the sort of issues that she had brought up was the environmental cost, right? So I think there's just going to, be this reckoning to be honest i think it's it's hard to say like you know what's the real reason that like elon like is pulling back on like his kind of prior sort of policies right because he can say that's environmental costs right but at the end of the day like we don't really i mean i think we can all make like guesstimates but at the same time right he has this like massive influence this like massive status um so and i'm sure he's also aware of that so there's a question of like what's being said or, like you know what people are saying they're doing versus like why they're doing it. But I think in general, right, there is this reckoning in terms of the environmental cost of like AI and machine learning. And granted, that's like kind of spurring some really nice in like innovation in terms of like, you know, how do we compress models, right? There's a lot of good research going on there. Um, you know, how do we, I think part part of what what's kind of spurring AutoML, right, isn't just the like, oh, we can cut out all the like the human data scientists out of the loop and just kind of get something better. But also like this understanding that like, well, if you go with the, you know, no free lunch theorem, Right. Um, this idea that you can kind of like predetermine sort of what, you know, model you use and what architecture and all that. Hypothetically, that's something that could have been done by like a machine. I kind of wish um, our resident data robot guy was here because he could talk more right about like kind of what they're doing over there. You know, so I think there is just, just going to be this reckoning. Right. I mean, you can't have you can't have every single person like on the planet trying to, you know, like like do BERT or like try to replicate, you know, GPT-3 and and not have it sort of not have it have issues you know. Thank you very much, Makiko. Um, if nobody else has anything to say on this topic, um, 
we'll just wait till Carlos gets here eventually, um, <laughs> if he ever does. But we can keep moving on for questions then. I uh, just noticed that Shantana is in the building. What's up, Shantana? What's up, Jennifer? Jennifer has some good news to share with us, I hope. Um, but let's first go to Makiko's question, and then we'll go to Greg's question. And then if anybody else has a question, please let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, basically, in two weeks, I'm starting a new opportunity, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I'll be working as a machine learning engineer uh, over at Mailchimp. Uh, man, this was this was a journey on on the job search. My God. Um, I think. Yeah. I, well, I can talk about it. If, anyone, if anyone has questions and and commiserations, I can I can talk about it later. But um, yeah. So super excited. Um, starting in like two weeks. Uh, signed the offer a week ago. So. Uh, essentially what I'm looking for is advice, you know, uh, the, you know, top piece of, of advice, uh, people may have, or even the top sort of gotchas to watch out for. If you are, you know, joining an engineering team for like the first time in your career, um, and just for context, right? Like, you know, I, I have seven years of work experience, like within data science analytics, but of those seven years, it's actually never been with like a real engineering team. It's always been like with business analytics or, you know, biz ops or, you know, data science, uh, you know, so I'm just trying to kind of figure out, um, you know, aside from getting familiarity with the fact that they use GCP and I've only used like AWS. So trying to get broad exposure to some of the tools that they're using. Um, if you have had experience kind of moving to an engineering team for like the first time, um, you know, what are some things that you would do to set your set yourself up for success? Um, and what are the things that you would like not do? Uh, let's go to Shantana for this one, because I think you might have some good experience with this. Um, Hi. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a bit weird to give Makiko any advice because I thought she once interviewed me for a role. <laughs> um, but hey, Girl, um, you, you're too smart for that role, honestly. <laughs> No, no, no. Seriously. You, you're too smart. Like, yeah, you, I mean, you crushed it. So like, I'm really happy that like, you know, you have a role where you can like really leverage your strengths because um, that, yeah, that was not a good team that you're interviewing for. I'm just going to be honest. So hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I would say so. Uh, I, I always say the same thing about about tools um, is like GCP, AWS. I think it really just doesn't matter. Um, if you have used one, you can scale that out to the others. Um, so I, I went from academia to, uh, you know, an, uh, working on an engineering team um, in ML and I was doing data science in academia. So there, you know, shifts uh, because of that. Um, so I, I, you know, had to learn all of these tools um, on the job because uh, and then I also the shift was from CERN to uh, industry. So we were using, you know, in-house tools for everything. Our cloud was our own and all of these things. So but that wasn't, you know, it was fine. It. It takes a little bit of time, uh, you know, I, I don't even think that long. Sorry, there are geese in my backyard. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the, the tools front, I, I have like, it was, it was totally fine. And then um, I don't know if you have, if they have what Scrum or, or whatever in terms of like the process. So that might be an adjustment if your previous teams uh, didn't follow that sort of stuff. For me, I think that was the biggest one because I was um, like, uh, I was so used to like experimenting and just sort of, you know, coming up, you know, just like having my time and figuring out the solution as I went uh, to move into a more structured, oh, you know, if you don't get to this uh, by this one point deadline, just you got to move on from it because you're you have other things on your board. So that was an adjustment for me. Thank you. I don't know for some reason why as soon as I heard the geese like that 
Flock of Seagulls song. I ran, started playing in my head. I have no clue why. Uh, maybe because it sounded like seagulls. But let's hear from Mark. And then after Mark, let's go to uh, Vin. And um, then we'll see who we go to after Vin. Go for it, Mark. Yeah. <clears throat> in my role specifically, my role is to bridge the gap between uh, the people scientists and the engineering team for, for building product. Um, and as you've seen, a lot of my questions are, how, how the hell do I talk to engineers? Um, and my manager really gave me some great advice recently um, that really kind of, I felt like take it, took it to the next level was that um, like you're ML engineer, you're going to be, M- you are, you're going to be, congrats anyways, ML engineer. Uh, so definitely engineer, but like you have like this data, like domain expertise. And so like, I thought I had to like punch up in a way when I went to the engineer. So like, I'll approach it like, like, Hey, I'm trying to be engineer too, in a way. And that was like bad approach. Um, because they're like, if I speak to it as if it's an engineering problem, cause I'm trying to meet them where they're at, they're going to be like, Oh yeah, it totally is an engineering problem. Why are you working on this? I, I can think about this and they're excited and passionate about it. But if I come to them as like, hey, here's this data problem that I'm solving with engineering. They're like, oh, that's really cool. That's your domain expertise. And they really appreciate that. Um, So I don't know if that's going to be the culture everywhere, but that's been the culture I've learned here. And once my manager shared that with me, it's like a light switch and just, it just, it just flipped. It was less like, why are my projects keep on being taken or deprioritized from engineering to like, oh, that's a cool data project. Yeah, let's collaborate. And so that was just a small nugget my manager gave me recently that was really helpful. Thanks, Mark. Uh, let's go to Vin. And if anybody else wants to chime in on this topic, uh, just raise your hand and I can call on you, but go for it, Vin. Yeah, I found the best thing to figure out in the first few days is whether each one of the engineers is scared of you, intimidated and scared of you, or has no idea what you do because it's one of those three. And that's if, especially if you're the first one in and they've never had an ML engineer before, or they haven't worked very closely with the data science team. It's one of those three. They have no idea what you're there for. And that can either scare them or scare and intimidate them. And so the faster you can educate, like this is the role that I do and put that box around exactly what it is that you can do for them. And these are the things that I do. And here's my box. And here are all the ways, you know, and you start having a conversation from there on. And here are all the ways we can work together. We're like my box and your box kind of sit on top of each other. And here's the value I add by doing the things that I can do. And here is what I deeply appreciate and respect that you do. And I've had so many cross-functional roles working with engineers and devs where it's just that approach. Like, here's the value I can add. But at the same time, I respect the living hell out of the value that you're bringing in because, I mean, you're obviously building something that's valuable. You've got a job. So that's always been my approach to it is, you know, here's what I do. And I'm educating from day one because it's... You know, it's scary when you have somebody that comes in and like what I do is automate people's jobs sometimes. And if you're in an engineering team, like that's in the back of your mind, you know, is this job, is this person going to take my job? And when you become a collaborator, that goes away. A whole lot of the, um, you know, laptop measuring contests that happen also go away when you start talking about here's my box, but our boxes overlap with each other. And I respect what it is that you do. And, you know, if you find somebody who's a barrier in almost every dev team, I don't know what it is, but there's always one person who is a crossover of extraordinarily smart and contributes in amazing ways. But also anytime anything new happens, it takes them a good six months to say anything nice. If you can get some allies early on to talk to that person for you, it's so much easier. And I do not know why every team has one, but 
That's the person that's going to make your life miserable. And finding some allies early is going to, that's the easiest way. Get a couple of allies on the team to start telling that person, hey, no, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Here, l- let me help you with getting through, you know, barrier rock mindset. And it, it'll make your life easier. Jennifer? Go for it. Yeah. One thing I always advise people in any job you go into, go in and focus on delivering something right away. That's going to show your value. Even if it's just something small that you think you can do in a week and they think it's going to take a month or you think it's a week and they think two days, deliver it. Whatever it is, deliver because that's what they need most is to know that they can rely on you. Um, And along the lines of collaboration, like you were saying, Vin, um, I suggest people don't brag about being the best at anything. Even if you are, um, don't say that. Don't go in with the, man, I am absolutely the best at this. Show them, deliver it, and they'll believe you. That's going to build your credibility, especially with the tough nuts to crack over the six-month Because, yeah, every developer team has that. It's kind of freaky. Awesome. Yeah, that, okay, cool. All all that's really good advice. Yeah, I think um, it's funny because when I was interviewing, uh, (laughs) so first of all, my family was very unhappy that I took this job Um, because I I had actually three offers uh, and they wanted me to take, they're like, take those other jobs, right? They're like, don't, like, you know. Um, But I think this one, it'll be good because I'm joining, uh, luckily I'm not the first. Uh, I'll be joining a, a team of at least five or six, uh, half of them are women. Um, it's got a staff, uh, machine learning engineer who's got at least like 10 plus years. Um, it's another two senior ML engineers and, uh, someone like me, who's, uh, we're not like junior, but associate, I guess would be the term. It's like below senior. Um, so that'll be really, so that, that'll be good. Like I'm looking forward to, and that's something that the other sort of like offers didn't have was they didn't have those kind of guardrails of like kind of, um, more like more senior talent because I, I really want to learn best practices. But at the same time, I get like really super nervous because there's that whole like imposter syndrome, right? That kicks in where I'm like, oh fuck, I'm like informally taught. <laughs> I'm informally taught. I haven't like really worked on an engineering team. I'm used to sort of being like the solo hero type, understanding that I do work, but it's like super messy. So um, so all this is good advice. Uh, yeah, super appreciate guys. I'm like, I'm excited, but I'm also like incredibly anxious. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah well, what i'm hearing too what i'm hearing it too is regardless of where you go when you join it sounds like you know technology learning new tools is the easiest part it's really forging these relationships and managing these relationships maintaining them that's what you want to focus on and if you're if you know if i can tell you anything my two cents is those 90, 90 days discover people you know let people discover you too what you're here for and that you're not here to step on their toes as Ven was saying. And, you know, the sooner you can spot what they value, what their goals are, because they are also trying to maybe move up the ladder. And if you're focusing on, you know, understanding what you will do, who will be affected by what you will do, but also who will be working with you to deliver the things that will impact others. If you make that circle and figure out everybody who touches, you know, what you will do, then you start interviewing them in forging these relationships. I think that's the most difficult one to do versus learning, you know, a tool uh, uh, that that you haven't been around before. So I'll second that, man. That is definitely 
the challenging part, especially for people like me who are kind of more on the quiet disposition side, like don't don't say much. Um, and it's it's hard to to try to make those connections at work, but it is very very important. People in the chat are talking about the book, the first ninety days. I know Makiko knows about that book because she recommended it to me when I started a job, uh, and it is a damn good book. Highly recommend that. Set me up for quite a bit of success. Um, any other um, points or things to say on this topic for Makiko? If anybody does, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, but while I wait for people to raise their hand, I will say that the next question goes to Greg. And if anybody has a question, please let me know in the chat. I will add you to the queue. Uh, Makiko, hopefully that was some good tips for you. Um, congratulations on the new role. Everybody join me in congratulating Makiko. I think that is awesome. Um, Greg, it's all you know. Yeah. Um, my question is um, this. Should data scientists act with more logic than emotion? And it's very vague. You can interpret it in different ways. But what I'm looking for is I feel like lately when I spend so much time with as you know, software developers, data scientists, and I try to take it back to business folks. My goodness, they look at me like I'm like I'm nuts. And I take a step back and I go, oh, crap, I didn't really explain that the right way. So I need to put a little bit of empathy into or simplicity into what I'm talking about. So what is that balance between logic and emotion That's, for a data scientist? Like if, if it's logic in the sense that your first gut reaction is, oh my God, that fucking suggestion is so stupid. Don't do that. Logically, <laughs> it won't work. Then I think calm down on that part of the logic. But um, I don't think it necessarily has to be a trade-off. You could still be empathetic and logical at the same time while finding positive sum situations for everybody. Uh, but I know that Mark was in very similar situations, might still be. So let's hear from him. Go for it. Um, I, I raised my hand really fast because I literally had this conversation with one of my colleagues um, on the data science team um, where he kind of felt that <clears throat> that like he was too empathetic that uh, that or too emotional in a way. And I, I, and are kind of like, we have like bi-weekly one-on-ones just to catch up and just have fun. And I was like, yo, dude, that's your superpower. Like, <laughs> like you should lean into it. Like, like one of the most empathetic, nicest individuals I've ever met. And I was, and, and like the work that he does, like, yes, he can do the hardcore stats, but when he goes into an executive room and shares those stories, that empathy, that emotion is what the business people are latching on to. And then later on, when they have the slide deck, they're like, oh yeah, the stats. Yeah, this, this makes sense. And I think they're really, really, I, I love hyping up my colleague because his most recent project, um, you know, one of our biggest, biggest uh, customers won't stop raving about the presentation. And I think that's a, a key contributor was the fact that, you know, he's able to tie in that emotion from both the analytics but build the story. And coming from my sociology background, this is this uh, this term called thick description, where you have the data, but the thick description is all the context around it, all the stories, the the qualitative data around that, the emotion, um, and that's the thing that really sells um, kind of hardcore logic. And so I think I don't think a data science needs to have both. I think if anything, a, a data science team needs to have both. You have those logical people. You have those very emotional connection people. Um, and if, if someone has both, that's great. But I, I think there's like a unicorn in a way. I feel like people lean one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, some great conversations here 
in the chat. Um, let's go to Russell first. Russell got some great tips here. Yeah, so I was just saying, um, logic, I think, is essential to make um, valuable decisions on the information that's before you. Don't try not to let emotion um, divert the decision-making. Make that purely logical. When you're delivering the message, uh, the outputs of that decision, then by all means, use emotion where it benefits. Certainly use empathy. Try to adjust the message that you deliver to the audience to be optimally understood by that audience. So, you know, don't use jargon if it's someone that doesn't understand the acronyms, et cetera. You know, op optimize it to, 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 to make it best understood under whatever circumstances you're delivering it. But as far as the decision-making goes, I think that needs to be purely logical. If you, if you start letting emotion crowd into your logical decision-making, you're far more likely to make mistakes, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, you do want to kind of give space between an emotional reaction and pausing, thinking it through, and then making your way forward. Um, Greg, I see you're unmuted still. So any comments or... Oh, good, good. Those are all good, good responses. So uh, I'm liking it. All right. I'd love to hear if anybody else has anything to say on this topic. There's a lot of good stuff in the chat. Let's go to uh, Akshay. He has some uh, great insight here as well. Yeah, just to add to Greg's point, I think like logic definitely is important in delivering any kind of data solution. Uh, but emotional side comes into play when you're trying to communicate to the executives. So um, you're not going to explain the statistics to a CEO or a CTO. They are not. They have no bandwidth to understand all the depths of that uh, technical aspects of that project. But that's where empathy kind of plays a superpower. So if you can convince them with a real example that they can relate with um, as how it would help their business, how would how would it help them reduce costs, save time, or retain more customers, like speak their language and empathy basically puts you in their shoes to communicate that. I think it, it it's hand in hand, you need both. Uh, but like Mark said, like it's a team effort rather than an individual effort. So you need a high performing team that delivers uh, with logic, but also has people that are empathetic to communicate the results. And I think together that combo will be beneficial for any team. Makiko, go for it. Yeah, I guess like the two things that kind of help me out, I personally tend to be, frankly, a very emotional person, which makes my choice of careers and hobbies somewhat ironic uh, in a number of ways. Um, but uh, one resource that helped me was Crucial Conversations. And it's funny, I only read half that book. I didn't read the rest of it. But I feel like the first half was uh, kind of a crucial insight where it was like, speak from the heart. And um, I think... Oddly enough, I feel like sometimes when you're having like sort of business, so if you're doing a presentation, right, obviously the language has to be very like professional and formal. Um, and there's never a time where it should ever be inappropriate, right? It should always be appropriate. But I feel like sometimes like when, when I've had meetings or conversations, especially about sort of like key projects or kind of like hot button issues, uh, it, a lot of times it made sense to more speak very like plainly, sort of the whole like speak from the heart, which is like, what do I want to really sort of get out of this situation? not just out of the person, but like for both parties and kind of just kind of going straight to it. Right. So I, I thought that book was really helpful for me. Um, yeah. And then the second part too is also sometimes I think there's, there's kind of the delivery mechanism, but also there's like the delivery stage. Right. So what I've observed is that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the executives or senior leadership that I work with that were sort of very effective, especially for example, in like sales and revenue operations, that tends to be sales and marketing and revenue operations, all that tends to be a very like sort of political environment. I feel like even within a company and finance, I don't know, maybe everything's politics everywhere. Um, but I felt like where 
the ones I saw who were really effective um, to have those conversations, part of it was they, they picked the timing and the place. So for example, if they're presenting an analysis, um, the meeting is not the first time that the executives are actually seeing that analysis. And it's not the first time they're seeing the hot button points. Um, they would have seen a lot of those hot button points, especially like in our investor talks. Um, they would have seen it like in a informal coffee chat or like a side meeting that was more like one-on-one. Um, and essentially what what that did was like, that kind of like helped, first off, that helped get you you the presenter right it helped you it helped you get the feedback early on as to like what the hot button issues like what are they going to bring up at that meeting where they're like well i disagree at this point you know well you know what do you mean by this this you kind of get that sort of earlier on so you can kind of like address it either directly or like in the appendix section um but it also sort of gave the other party kind of a heads up like look this is this is kind of like coming down like into the pipeline um i feel like a lot of times we have this natural tendency to like if something is going to cause like sort of issues or um, kind of politics, we kind of like want to just keep it to like as far away as possible and keep it to that like one presentation meeting. But the, the ones I, I saw who were very successful, even dealing with like multiple hard personalities, um, that's kind of how they handled it was especially too good when you're in like the boardroom environment and there's like multiple people, a lot of times things can impact a lot more painfully than they would have if you were literally having the same conversation like with the person, like on a coffee chat. Yeah. Um, let's hear from Sh- uh, Shantan on this, but also one thing, man, it's like to, to, I don't know if I'm losing footing of the question here, but you just, when you're talking to people, just have the assumption that this person did not intend to come to work today to fuck up. Right. Like this, this, this guy didn't wake up this morning and say, you know what? I'm just going to do a horrible fucking job at work today. That's, that's my MO. Um, and you got to realize that the other person on the other side of the table isn't thinking that about you either. Um, I, I don't know if that fits in at all, but I just want to make that point. But Shantan, let's go to you. Yeah, I mean, I love that we're talking about empathy and, and tactfulness, uh, but I also want to want to uh, draw attention to something else. Uh, statistics is not actually a super hard science. Um, there, uh, I mean, there might be uh, <laughs> folks here that um, uh, are more hardcore in statistics than myself. But um, in my experience, and you know, uh, studying studying math and, and physics, it's there are lots of things that are left up to your decision, up to your choice. Uh, there are, you know, even like what kind of statistics you're going to do, right? What kind of statistics is appropriate for a given type of, of data set or size of data set. And while it's true that like, um, let's say I'm going to, I need to make a decision based on data. And, uh, you know, while, while it's true that I probably want to do some sort of, you know, confidence testing or, or hypothesis testing, right? And there are set set knobs with the data size, the, you know, the level of um, significance I want to reach and then the power of the test and so on and so forth. Those are like harder stuff, but there is still so much that is uh, just so subjective. Like this, uh, two data scientists can work with the same data set, trying to answer the same question, make the same decision and come up with, you know, different, different answers and different recommendations. So um, that's where sort of I see the, and I don't really see it as a logic versus emotion because logic is, logic is not fact, right? As a, like logic is you convincing yourself or you convincing others through uh, arguments that follow from one another. But if you start from, you know, if, if your premise is wrong, if you start from a wrong place, then you can definitely go the wrong way with logic. So um I just I think that it's it's more, you know, judgment and use what 
uh, the the right balance of of the two and there are other dimensions as well for the right situation. Vin, thank you, Jonathan. By the way, that was a great great response. Yeah, this one's kind of taking it a little different direction, but you have to understand that there's a lot of people that are like me that don't have natural empathy. I actually have, and there's a lot of us that inhabit the data science side of the world and also the sort of senior leadership side of the world where empathy is not like a natural thing that comes to us. You know, I'm an ND. And so that's, and when I open up about this, I get a whole bunch of nodding heads and it's like, Oh, I'm not the, you know, and I started realizing about six or seven years ago, it was like, Oh, there's a lot of us. So when you talk about, you know, you do bring in empathy to sort of address the 70% of the room, you have to realize there's 30% of us in that room. that are faking it. We have no idea how we should be responding emotionally to the majority of situations. And so, you know, kind of realize that that's a lot, especially in data science, because we all, we seem like we like leadership, you know, and we also like the hardcore data engineering science side of this. So there seems to be a lot more of us in these fields than in most. And so when you're trying to speak for persuasion, when you're trying to sort of speak to mixed audiences, always think about there are some of us who are in that room and the emotional portion of that doesn't make any sense to us. Like we don't get it. And sometimes you see an extraordinary reaction, like a reaction that doesn't make any sense from someone. You're thinking, oh, I was too emotional. I shouldn't have got, no, it really is. That person just had no idea what to say. They, <laughs> they did not know what to say. And they said the absolute wrong thing. And they are now going home and spending the next six or seven hours going over in their mind exactly how wrong what they said to you was and how they are going to the next day either apologize to you or somehow cover it up. You have to understand that the, you know, the emotional side of this works the majority of the time, you know, it will work the way you think it will most times. And then it'll run into somebody like me who's just really faking it. And on the flip side, when I work with people who make decisions emotionally, because I find that a lot of people who are really smart make their best decisions when they use just a skosh of that emotion, when they allow that intangible piece to come into the decision process, they make a lot of good decisions that I don't like, I don't pick up those cues. And so I don't, I don't have the same information to gather and to make the decision based off of, but they do really well because they're picking up that small piece of emotion. And so when you do, when I do a presentation, I'm thinking about how can I leave, how can I make it so that everyone leaves happy about the decision that they made today or happy about the results or how they're thinking about my presentation? How can I make everybody comfortable with the way they're feeling when they leave? And that's something that I've intentionally had to put into my presentations because long ago, they used to be called kind of cold and robotic. I didn't read the room well. I didn't connect very well with, you know, and so I had to do some intentional things. And I think everyone wants to leave happy about the way that they were thinking and what they decided. And that's always been the best emotion for me to inject into to really heavy data presentations is to leave everybody kind of happy. Vin, thank you very much. Uh, you, I, six to seven hours after an incident, I think giving people too much credit, man. Uh, people are not thinking about you. They're thinking mostly about themselves. But uh, that was great responses. Anybody else have anything else to, uh, to say on this topic um, while we're on it? Also, we'll open it up for any questions as well, any last minute questions. Um, Tom, I'd love to hear from you on this, Tom, actually. That, that's one voice that's been, that's been missing today. Well, I love all of you guys, and I'm going to be honest. I am so fried right now. I should be working on my book, but I'm like, it's not happening. I'm too fried right now. And um, 
I'm actually kind of jealous because Auntie, who I deeply respect, thanked Makiko for her answer. And I kind of went, shit, I didn't listen to her carefully enough. And I usually am a Makiko groupie. When she starts talking, I'm like, I got to hear this. So <clears throat> Heartbreak Brother, just so I can engage the last little ounce of my brain I have left this afternoon. Could you repeat the question for me? And I will try. I promise. Yeah, and Greg's yeah. laughing because he knows why I'm tired. We... Uh, this is kind of when, though, Greg and I put together a presentation and we've given it between the two of us. We've given it three times now. And it, it was a big win. It was funny because it was for a conference that I came up with the name for. And then uh, I didn't get asked to speak at it. But the keynote speaker dropped out and Beverly asked me to, you know, in our group, Harper, she asked me to jump in. It went really good. But I'm so fried because I got up early. Greg, do you want to go ahead and uh... tell me, Greg? Tell me the question. Oh, this is related to the things that we we, we, we talk about. Uh, I was saying, should a data scientist uh, create balance between logic and, and, uh, and emotion? Should a data scientist have more of one than the other? Now I remember quite well, because when you first answer the question, I remember thinking that overwhelms me just thinking about it. I'm not sure I have anything, but one thought that did come to my mind, and I'm, I'm really interested if anyone kind of feels the same way, it's this. I, I would always lead with logic, but it, um, like Santona said, am I saying your name right, Santona? Shantana. Shantana, thank you. I liked what she was saying. Um, we, as humans, we misuse logic a lot. It's because we start from a wrong premise. But if you start from data, if you start from facts, um, I think it's okay to add emotion on top of facts. But I'll confess, too often when I get emotional, I have uh, failed in emotional intelligence. And uh, I think I've grown in emotional intelligence more in the last five years than in my whole life. But it's something I still have to work on a lot. And I think this really comes down to the area of emotional intelligence. And thankfully, there's been some outstanding books written on this. And I think it comes back around to Makiko. I think it was you that said it. Crucial Conversations. Um, it's written by a group called Vital Smarts. I love these guys. They've written four books. And um, one of them is uh, influencers. And Greg, I think this comes full circle around to your point. If you read influencers and you apply emotion appropriately in the framework that they're laying out, then emotion or empathy or however we want to put it becomes very powerful because it's then it's well targeted. Thank you very much. Uh, before Jennifer leaves, Jennifer, do you want to share some good news with us? Is she still here? Yes, Jennifer, share yeah. some good news. Go for it. Um, I got a new job recently. I was dancing literally like you did, Makiko. Um, so I'm moving into Intel's corporate strategy office. I am super excited because I've been in engineering for about 15 years. Um, and we have a lot of questions in this group about where to go next in career and how do you know? You guys, so I come here because I love data. You are my people. I love you guys. The skills and the foundation that you have are a part of every business at every level. You can take it and experiment with it in a lot of different places. Strategy office, there's data group in there. They're hiring you know, specifically for that right now. Um, wherever you wanna go, find something fun and go chase after it because you guys have the skills and the abilities to impact every organization in a business 
every type of business that there is. It's a really unique proposition that you have. So I wanted to encourage you guys. And then I got to go because I'm late for a meeting. But thanks. Have a thank you guys. Have a great week. Jennifer, thank you so much. Appreciate having me here. Everybody join me in congratulating Jennifer. All right, guys. uh, Question here. We'll make this the last question. This is coming from Mark. And it's a question about Java. Um, I'm going to give this one to Vin because uh, when Vin was on my podcast, I asked him Python or R. This is back when I didn't know how to ask questions on podcast episodes. And he said, neither Java. So uh, this one will go to him. And that, that episode is exactly why I'm asking this. Um, so my friend recently reached out to me. He's like, I want to learn how to code. He's super passionate about Minecraft and Minecraft's built off Java. And I was like, awesome. I heard Vin talk about Java and therefore I need to learn it myself. So this is an awesome opportunity to hang out with my friends, learn Java. And it's, 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 it's going to be really fun. I have a few ideas. I've learned how to code in SQL, R, and Python. Um, so I, I have some approaches to learn how to code. But I'm curious because Java is very focused on object-oriented programming. And um, it's just a different way of, of coding a little bit than, than Python. And so I guess like at a high level, what would be your game plan to one, learn it, but also teach it to someone else who's new to coding? Um, and and I'm I'm teaching it because uh, because he's completely new to coding and also because it helped me learn faster. Oh, you gotta wow! How did I learn Java? It was like trial and error. <laughs> I'll be completely honest. <laughs> Java was trial and error, and a whole lot of really smart people uh, beating up my code. That that's how I learned it. Is a whole bunch of code reviews. Um, that that's how I learned like each one of the versions of Java and all of the upgrades and all of the new functionality I learned because somebody else around me learned Java was one of those weird languages where I didn't, I wasn't actively going out and learning like latest greatest. There was always somebody on the team that was 40 times smarter than me and a hundred times better at software engineering best practices And they would bring it into the team and say, hey, so here's this new cool thing like lambdas. Somebody just brought in lambdas is like, dude, you're writing this. It's this. And that's how I learned Java was this incremental, you know, sort of learning thing. So I would say, honestly, teach it the same way. Start with something dumb, simple, and then add functionality. Have like a roadmap for a project where you're actually building functionality that's going to take increasingly complex work to do and have milestones where you're going to have to do redesigns, where you actually have to go Mm -hmm. back and re-architect the solution because that's where I learned a ton from too is, you know, you build it, everybody builds like the first thing badly anyway. So why not just nod your head and build that first project as worst practices? Here we go. And then that second project that you do, make it one where you got to re-architect. Like where all the stuff you did wrong and all the stuff you forgot to document and all that, like in the real world, comes back to bite you. And now you have to rebuild the whole thing plus new functionality. And you have to architect it this time. You actually have to use your patterns and practices. You have to use software engineering and you got to figure out like what is object oriented for real, not like memorizing it, like you're answering an interview question, but why do we do any of the object oriented stuff? Why is it important? You know, and like, don't beat people up over interfaces and stuff like that. Cause those are kind of like, come on, you can do it five ways. I get it. There's people that love this and hate that, you know, so don't go down those rabbit holes of like standing different types of, you know, almost, it's almost like there's a ton of different ways you can do tab versus space. And if you 
kind of gets stuck in that sort of rigidity. It makes it you know, you lose track of the more important best practices. So that would be like my pitfall is as you're re-architecting, like don't re-architect with that sort of rigid mentality that there's only one way of building in Java because there's 18. And whatever you do, don't forget that after, uh, I think it's Java 8, you got to pay for things. So teach that. Like it got expensive after a particular version. So, you know, there are other considerations in Java that can teach you a lot about software engineering at an enterprise level. And so don't miss all of those lessons too. Don't just make this about learning syntax and learning how to slap classes together and that sort of thing. Don't make it all about encapsulation or any of that, you know, make it about building because Java is it's enterprise for a reason. Like it was built this way and people hate it and call it ugly, but it was built this way because companies build stuff this way. Like everything that everyone hates, except for no pointers. I don't know why those are there, but every other thing that everyone hates about Java is there for like an enterprise reason. And it's got a lot of the same ecosystem that Python does. So there's a lot of those components that you can also kind of pull in from Python. We can say this components like this, or, you know, uh, definitely teach how to actually build a project and ship it like in a deployable way. Don't ignore that. Cause I didn't learn that until like five or six years after I'd first started coding in Java. So don't forget to teach that early on. It was like embarrassing for me that I couldn't deploy a project on my own. And so that's like my long-winded answer. I'm sorry. I took a lot of time there. Oh, man. So oh, that, that was, that was great. And then just a quick follow-up question to that is like, for that starter project, we were thinking about approaching just trying to find like an open source kind of project to add to, kind of like an easy first Ooh. ticket. Would that be a good approach or should we try to do our own kind of project and then do that expand out? Or it's kind of like pick your poison, just do do something. I feel like it's the latter, but... Um, if you're doing like an open source, make sure your, you know, your software engineering best practices are in place, your code's clean. If you don't write clean code, don't submit to an open source project early because that can be... Depending upon how understanding the people who are doing the reviews are, that can that can hurt a little bit and mess up your pride. So I would say if you are, you know, if you write some clean code, and that's a great great place to start. If your if your code's not clean at first, do like a toy project. Don't dive straight into open source because that can get, like I said, most most projects are pretty open and they're you know they're kind of understanding, but there are several open source projects out there, especially in the more hardcore, you know, programming languages like Java and C where, and syntax gets you murdered. Like you can get murked in the comments. Uh, Jonathan, I saw some good tips from you in the chat. Would you like to share some of those? I was mostly just agreeing with uh, Vince point about uh, standing up the framework or the bare bones version and then adding functionality to it and also iterating on it and making it cleaner and better. And that's just, you know, just a good, good way to live your life. <laughs> right on. Thank you. Um, so Mark, there you go, man. That's how you learn Java. Anybody else here do Java that wants to, to help Mark out? Uh, if not, does not look like there are any more questions. So, oh, Tom. One recommendation. Yeah. Re read Head First Java. That is a great book. It's fantastic. Uh, I would, yeah, I would read that book um, and maybe grab one of those Udemy like toy project classes, the one where they're like, oh yeah, build these 12 apps with like Python, but try to find one for, for Java. No, I, I, um, I actually will politely correct people for getting involved in the R versus Python debate. I don't agree with it, but Mark, I just can't help myself right now. 
why Java? What is wrong with you? <laughs> and, and it's funny. I shouldn't say it, but I'm, I'm actually being honest. I'm feeling it. Why Java? Um, one, blame Vin, because I heard it on the podcast and that just stuck in my head. He felt so passionate about it. And then two, Minecraft is is uh, is built off Java. And my friend's passionate about Minecraft. And like my selfish kind of goal is to get my friend into coding. And that's like a perfect project to get him hooked on. Okay, C++ has more acceptance in IoT. Come on, man. Come on. Give your robots. I cannot agree with C++ being a starter language. It was for me. And no. <laughs> so it was uh, in addition to to. Vin, it was also Andreas Kretz that responded at Java as well. Um, but I mean, learn something, right? Might, might be, might be fun, might be interesting. I might, might pick that up this summer as well. Why not? At least get familiar with it. I was doing some Node.js earlier this year, like the first month of, uh, first couple months of the year, just to play around with it. It seemed pretty interesting. Uh, C++ is as much of a star language as Java. So if you're going to, you know, start with hell, start with the, you know, the, the debauchery side of hell. That's fine. Somebody was saying something? No. All right, cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming and hanging out today. Check out the interview I released on the podcast with Dennis Rothman, the one and only enigmatic Dennis Rothman. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. We talked about a bunch of interesting things. So go check that out. Make sure you guys all tune in to the podcast. Well, rather the happy hour next friday because vivian is taking over for me it's my wife romy's birthday next friday so we'll be hanging out romy happy birthday to you um i'm looking forward to just being on the lake in a beautiful cabin and just chilling out next week um I'm not even bringing many books with me like last time we went out to the lake i brought like literally seven books with me for a three-day trip i don't know what the fuck i was thinking uh this time just one one book because I have to interview this guy, Jordan Ellenberg, uh, Shape, and I'll probably bring a fiction book, but mostly just notebooks to write. I'm going to, you're going to see my aphorism game strong on LinkedIn when I come back. I'm going to just be throwing fucking aphorisms at you guys. You can be like, damn, this guy's insightful uh, or crazy. One or the other. Uh, Tom? Oh, I was just going to throw out an encouragement. I'm going to try extra hard to be here next week to support Vivian's first podcast yeah. running. Everybody show up, bring questions. I'm so nervous that it's just going to be like me sitting there staring at myself being like, well. <laughs> yeah, Vivian, I'm worried for you because you don't really know how to ask this group challenging questions. So you probably won't. <laughs> well, have if nobody before. shows up, am I just going to be asking myself like, hi, Vivian, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. I guarantee you more people will show up for you than they will for me. It'll be awesome. Uh, by the way, Vivian, though, hang around afterwards. I'm going to send you a link. Let's talk right after this uh, for a few minutes. Okay. Um, but yeah, man, you guys, thank you so much for hanging out. Um, looking forward to seeing you two weeks from today. Um, and be sure to come hang out with Vivian next week. Hey, before you drop off, I don't have the Zoom link for next week. I'm looking at, I'm looking at it and it doesn't look like it's scheduled. It's uh, I, I might have left it off. So for everybody listening, it, I might have just deleted it just in case from the thing. But it's the same exact link that you use this week. It's always the same link, even though I tell you guys it's a personalized Zoom link. Uh, but it's not. It's the the same link. All of you guys have the exact same link to to get here. It's just one link. Um, but yeah, it's still next week. Just click on the same link that you used to get here. Um, but yeah, cool guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everybody.